quits, I'll keep on working on this I'm working hard on this It's plain obvious it is Oh, oh Dive, oh Dive in Dive oh, oh, oh. Hi there and welcome You're listening to the Diving In Podcast Brought to you by Virginia Seymour and Louise Jones This podcast is part of a lifelong conversation between friends about the books we're reading and the issues they make us think about. That also goes for the movies and television we're watching and the podcasts we're currently hooked on. We might even talk about what's in the news and anything else we're diving into this week. Diving in. Hello, Louise. Hello. Hello, divers. We're recording in Louise's study again today, but I fear this might not last Mm. given the situation in Victoria and we may be back to remote recording at any time, which does make me nervous because of my lack of skill. But not at all. You've mastered the skills. You've mastered the skills. Um, Andy probably, you know, winces when I say that. So, Lou, I'm really looking forward to our conversation today. I think mm. I'm going to come away from it with more books on my to-be-read yeah, I agree. list. Recent events in America and Australia with the Black Lives Matter movement have led us to do some soul-searching and to realise that we could do a lot better in addressing our white privilege and we want to educate ourselves more on this issue and the way we do that is by reading books on the subject or more books on the subject. Here in Australia, we have structural racism both towards our Indigenous Australians and also to our other non-white citizens, unfortunately. And so for today, we've decided to read some books about Indigenous Australians' experiences and also a little bit about white privilege. And in episode four, we discussed two fiction and two non-fiction books mm. by Indigenous authors. They were really good, weren't They're they? They're fantastic. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. So Louise spoke about two books by Bruce Pascoe and I spoke about a book by Tara June Winch and one by Melissa Lukashenko and they were both excellent. And today we're going to discuss a few more fiction and non-fiction books. So for our overseas listeners, some background... Indigenous Australians are the oldest continuous race on the planet and they've been here in Australia for 65,000 years. Mm. And Australia was settled by the British in 1788, which is only 232 years ago. So when you sort of look at Mm, it like that, it's a staggering difference. And as at 2016, Indigenous Australians make up only 3.3% of the population Mm. Uh, but they do make up about 28% of our prison population. And I have more statistics, but we'll come to them later. So what book did you want to start off with today, Lou? Um, well, I want to start out off with the book Follow the Rabbit Proof Fence. I'm just going to sound a warning that uh, during the discussion of this book and, in fact, a couple of others today, we will be mentioning the name of Aboriginal people who have passed away which is something that Aboriginal people don't do. Yeah. The first book I'm going to talk about is probably widely known to many Australians. The author of The Rabbit Proof Fence is Nugi Garamara, and that's her Aboriginal name. But she's also widely known by her other name, Doris Pilkington. Follow the Rabbit Proof Fence was first published in 1996. And since 2000, it's been reprinted every year. And some years it's been reprinted multiple times. 
And then in 2002, a film based on the book was released internationally and both the book and the film remain widely available if people are interested. So it's the true story, an extraordinary story, of three Aboriginal girls, Molly, Daisy and Gracie. They're living with their families in the 1930s in a very tight-knit community in the north of Western Australia at a place called Jigalong, and that's in the remote East Pilbara region to the west of the Gibson Desert. And Molly was the eldest of the three girls and she is the author's mother. Oh, okay. So the book starts by chronicling the arrival of white people to Western Australia. And I think I'm going to share some of this because it's an important historical Mm. context for our whole episode. And this, of course, is where... Australian history that most of us learned at school in the 70s and 80s in Western Australia essentially started. So in primary school, Australian history, at least West Australian history, was framed by reference to the dates the white people arrived, not, as you said earlier, from the perspective of the ancient Aboriginal heritage. Now, the southwest region of Western Australia are the traditional lands of the Noongar Aboriginal people or First Nations people. And their first recorded encounters with white people are with American whaling and sealing ships who were hunting for whales off the southern coast. And the whaling crews were made up of escaped convicts and and all manner of, of desperate men. And they came ashore at various camps from South Australia to Western Australia and they had very violent encounters with Noongar people. They captured the women as slaves, I presume Mm. for sex, uh, and they murdered many of them. And, of course, the situation was quite different. Several years later, in 1829, the British Captain Stirling arrived on the ship Parmelia along with a group of white settlers and they disembarked very close to where you and I are now sitting on nearby Cottesloe Beach. Yeah. And they proceeded to claim one million square miles of territory and named it the Swan River Colony. So that colony expanded as the settlers discovered more and more fertile land. The Noongar people were completely dispossessed. Their lands, their hunting trails and their trade routes Mm. were cleared and became farms with fences. And that meant that they were cut off from their traditional food source. The other thing that the colony did was it prohibited Aboriginal people from expressing their traditional stories and dance or any form of ceremony, unless, of course, the white people felt like it or wanted it as some sort of show or display. And what we know now is that the telling of stories and ceremonies, they're an integral part of Aboriginal cultural governance, and it's how law and knowledge is passed between passed, generations. Passed down to the yeah. next. Yeah. So by banning sacred expressions of cultural heritage, this began to erode oh, yeah. the communities. Yeah. By the 1900s, there was so much development and settler prosperity in Western Australia. You know, farms and towns expanded north and south, and there was no provision for Aboriginal people when their lands were there removed. There was no treaty, of there course. There was no treaty that. at all. Yeah. Now, Molly, Daisy and Gracie's people were Mardu Aboriginals from the north, and in the book we learn that the Mardu had a relatively good relationship with people in the Pilbara, but again, the frame of reference is Aboriginal people having to adapt to fit in with the changes 
over which they had no control. So the Pilbara cattle farmers trained the men as stockmen and they were very good stockmen and the women became domestic servants. And, of course, because their food sources had been removed and their lands were gone, they wanted work and they were grateful for any kindness that was shown towards them. But there was a great deal of sexual exploitation of the women and there was some violence. Hmm. Now, this expansion of farming required the construction of a rabbit-proof fence. Now, rabbits had been introduced into eastern Australia and they were encroaching on the west and they were serious pests. So this huge fence was constructed between 1901 and 1907. There were actually two fences. There was one that went from the South Esperance, all the way up to Wyndham. That's three over 3,000 kilometres. It's incredible. And then the one that we're concerned with in this book was constructed further west and it went up to Marble Bar, which is sort of around where the Madhu people were. And the government built depots along the way and they were the bases for the maintenance men who travelled up and down the fence and carried out repairs. And Molly's mother, Maud, and her Mardu family, they lived at the Jigalong Depot, which was to the north of the rabbit-proof fence. And that depot had become a base camp for many Mardu people in the 1930s because food was so scarce and because they were seeking refuge from violence. They could go and create this large camp at the depot and they would be given blankets and food. And it, it so happened that the Jigalong Depot superintendent, he was also the protector of Aborigines, appointed under the 1905 Aborigines Act. Now, I I should just say the word Aborigine is not a word we use anymore to refer to Aboriginal or First Nations people. But this act came into being following Royal Commission findings that Aboriginal people and children were being exploited and mistreated by settlers, particularly in the north, and that children fathered by settlers who in those days were referred to half-caste children, again, a deeply offensive term to Aboriginal people, were not being supported by their white fathers. So this new act in 1905 made mixed marriages and sexual relations between settlers and Aboriginal people illegal and it made the protector the legal guardian of every Aboriginal child in Western Australia up to the age of 16 years. Now, all the other states had very similar legislation, enacted within several years of each other. But this was quite unique, this idea that every Aboriginal child under the age of 16 would be in the guardianship of the state. That was something particular to Western Australia. And the Act permitted authorities to remove Aboriginal children from their families and send them to institutions and detain them there or to detain them in service so that they would learn European ways. Mm. It's just mm. it's just outrageous, isn't it? Mm. And this terrible piece of legislation governed the lives of Aboriginal people in Western Australia for nearly 60 years, but it was in fact replaced in 1964 by legislation was not much better. And so it, it continued. It, yeah, you know, it, it certainly Just different continued. iterations of the same Correct. thing. Correct. Yeah. And now all of this has been documented in great detail during the National Inquiry into the separation of Aboriginal children from their families as we know them as the Stolen Generation. Mm. And that led to a landmark report bringing them home which was tabled in parliament on the 26th of may 1997 and i'll put a link to the bringing them home report in the show notes and that report estimates that a hundred thousand children were removed (sighs) pursuant to that act so the superintendent at jigalong is watching all the children including molly and she remembers that she was the only muda muda child that is the aboriginal word for half caste 
She was the only Muda Muda child there. And the other Madu children at Jigalong called her a mongrel dog. Oh, no. And they said she was neither Madu nor Wujabula, which is white man, and they wouldn't play with her. But soon Daisy and Gracie move to live closer to her and they become inseparable and they refer to each other as sisters but they're in fact cousins, their mothers were sisters. And Gracie and Daisy are muda muda like Molly. Their fathers were white and their mothers Aboriginal and it's documented in correspondence that the superintendent noted how they were treated by the other Madu children and he suggested that these three girls be removed. And that's exactly what happened in July 1931. In a very peremptory, matter-of-fact fashion one morning, Molly and Daisy were digging for yams with their family and by the, by the afternoon they were in a car picking up Gracie on the way. And it goes without saying that this was an exceedingly traumatic experience for the girls and their families. So the way Aboriginal people express sorrow is by bashing themselves in the head and inflicting wounds on themselves, um, which their relatives did with sharp objects. It's just really inconceivable that this is only less than 100 years ago. Yeah. Seven days later, they were far away south in the Moore River Native Settlement, which was an institution school set up specifically for boys and girls removed from their families. And pretty much upon their arrival on this day in July 1931, Molly determined that they wouldn't stay there. So the other children were very friendly and there was a veneer of kindness from the matron and teachers. But they heard that afternoon they arrived that simple misbehaviours would attract incarceration in a small, solitary, concrete room. And they noticed the huge padlocks, at least Molly noticed, the huge padlocks on the dormitory doors. And she was told by the other children that at night the dormitories were padlocked and they would be locked in and there were bars on the windows, and the dormitories are extremely overcrowded. Mm. And the other children told them stories of girls and boys who had tried but failed to escape, and they were returned by Aboriginal trackers, and they were whipped and confined. So it's 48 hours of their arri- within their arrival. It's the second morning, and it's their first day at school, and the other children are getting ready and getting dressed, And Molly offers to wait in the dormitory to empty the toilet bucket. And all the other children are getting ready to leave. And she tells her sisters to grab their bags. She was in charge. She was three years older than Gracie and she was seven years older than Daisy. She was possibly a bit naive, but she was absolutely determined and insistent. And she tells them, look, if we're able to walk north and find the rabbit-proof fence, it will take us home to Jigalong. And so they leave. Within a day and a half, they leave. And the second half of the book is their attempt to trek the 18,000-kilometre journey. Now, that's a journey that is the distance from Los Angeles to San Francisco and back or the distance from Chicago to Houston. It's incredible, isn't it? On foot. But also in baking heat. Oh, yeah, absolutely. With Uh, no food or water. On foot, no no shoes, aged 14, 11 and 8, they have to persistently dodge trackers and the attempts to find them. They're exposed to the elements, the animals. It's an extraordinary tale. It's It's what I call a small but mighty story. So that's Follow the Rabbit Proof Fence by the University of Queensland Press and uh, it's a story that all of us need to read. Wow, Louise, I've got to read that now, Mm. even though I'm sure it'll be hard to do. 
there is a bittersweet postscript, actually, which I should mention. Many years later, Molly is married herself and she has two small children of her own and she's unwell and she's admitted to hospital with appendicitis, I think it was. But when she's ready to leave hospital, and this is years later, she's compulsorily detained and she's sent back to the Moore River Aboriginal settlement where she absconds a second time with one of her daughters. So she leaves the other daughter behind. Wow. And that child remains at Moore River until she's allowed to leave at age 18. I think she actually contrives to leave by enrolling to become a nurse and they allow her to leave. Oh, no. Uh, and that child, Doris, is the author of the book. Oh. Okay. Yeah, so interesting. Wow. Very interesting. Yeah. Oh, Lou. What have you been reading, Virginia? I've been reading, I'll start off with two books that I've read by Stan Grant. We mentioned him briefly last episode. I've read... Talking to My Country, which he wrote first, and that was written in 2016. Mm. And then I've also read Australia Day, which was written last year. So Stan Grant is an Indigenous writer and journalist. He's a Wiradjuri man and he his father is Wiradjuri and his mother is Kamilaroi. And Wiradjuri were the largest uh, Indigenous nation on the eastern seaboard. He's had a very successful career as a journalist. He's spent many, many years travelling the world covering stories for CNN. Uh, he lived away from Australia for many years yeah. and that gave him some distance and some perspective on his Indigenous heritage and the place of Indigenous people in modern Australia and his place in it mm. all. And I think to some extent he felt that he had to get away. Mm. He felt that he was uh, suffocating in Australia. So obviously a job with CNN travelling the world to some very risky locations yeah. was preferable to staying in Australia for him at that time. So this book was written in 2016 after Stan took his youngest son on a journey mm. into, he calls it a journey into his country or into Australia. Mm. And it was a journey that they took instead of taking him through the law in the traditional ceremonial way, um, which involved scarring and, and so on. So he started off by taking him to a place near Stan's parents' home called Poison Waterholes mm. Creek and then to the site of a massacre called Murdering Island and he sits down and he explains the history of his yeah. people to his young son. He feels it's time for him to learn about that side of his heritage and, of course, you can imagine what the story is about Poison Waterholes Creek and yeah. Murdering Island. And then he yeah. describes driving afterwards with his son asleep in the back of the car and he starts to reflect on his own childhood. And his parents were itinerant. Uh, they moved from town to town as his father found work. He would find a job, do that for a while. His mother would equip a house from St Vincent de Paul and whatever they could get, they were very poor. And then that job would come to an end or for whatever reason, they would literally pack everything into one car, Stan and his siblings in the back, and they would go on to the next town. So Stan attended more than a dozen schools before he was in his teens. And he writes, exclusion and difference. These were the abiding lessons of my early school years. So through the book, he then charts the steps taken by Prime Minister Gough Whitlam in the 1970s and Gough Whitlam established the Department of Aboriginal Affairs and there were programs to try and keep kids in school, 
to create employment and to promote home ownership. And this was an attempt to create a a more level playing field Mm. and to create pathways for Aboriginal families to merge more successfully with mainstream Australia. And so through that stance, parents were able to apply for an Aboriginal housing loan. And because his father was earning a little bit more, they'd moved to Canberra and he was working at a sawmill. And because his mother started working cleaning cars, they were able to just save a deposit and they were able to get Mm. a home. And that really did change the trajectory of Stan's life. Having said all that about Gough Whitlam's policy about trying to keep kids in school, I'll just quote this uh, from talking to my country. Stan says, when I was 15, the principal of our high school called some of us Aboriginal kids to his office. He wanted us gone. By law, we were no longer required to attend school. He suggested it might be time we looked at other options. We could pick fruit or work on the local council. Some of us might get an apprenticeship, he said, but higher education was clearly not an option. The government was paying us to keep us in school, but the headmaster was doing what missionaries, welfare officers and the police had been doing for 200 years. He was handcuffing us to our history, reminding us that if we did have a place in Australia, it would be on the margins. Here was my early taste of how official policy, well intended, could shatter against a wall of entrenched racism. So that's late 70s, early 80s? Yeah. Stan is a very similar age to us. Yes. So that was his experience. And you just read that against the background knowing what he's accomplished in his life. Mm. It's it's quite staggering. Mm. So he talks about the fact that when the British first arrived on Australian shores, they operated under a legal fiction of terra nullius, which yes. means an empty land, the presumption being that the Indigenous people did not count as a race. And the myth was that Captain Cook had discovered, in inverted commas, Australia, and that Blaxlin, Wentworth and Lawson were the first people to ever cross the Blue Mountains and so on. And that legal fiction of terra nullius was the backbone of government policy until 1992 when the Marbo decision by the Australian High Court overturned the concept. But there were, in fact, hundreds of distinct peoples, you know, Banjalang, Kamilaroi, Arabana, Yorta Yorta, Noongar here mm. that you've mentioned, and many, many more. But the British called them all Aboriginals, which is yes. a word that meant nothing to his people. Mm-hmm. And then they successively tried to classify them by how much Indigenous blood they had mm. across some 67 different iterations of classification over the years. And that they were iterations of white. Of so course. it was always by the standard of white, wasn't it's, it? It was sort of almost like eugenics. It was just yes. literally how much blood, percentage of blood you had. Mm. Just awful. Mm. And initially Governor Philip, when he first founded the settlement, he had instructions from the Crown to protect the lives and livelihoods of mm. Aboriginal people and to forge friendly relations mm. with the natives But after a few years of violence on both sides, his policy became one of attempting to extinguish them. Yeah, he just threw it out the window. Yeah, and um, for many years after that, successive governments had a clear policy to eradicate Mm. all Indigenous Australians. And that policy of eradication has had a lasting impact Mm. on all of them. So that government policy changed over the years, but it wasn't really until the 1970s that there began to be policies to help advance the lives of Indigenous people, like you mentioned the the Aborigines Act, but that was really 
there may have been some well-meaning people, but I don't. I think it was really more about looking at the children of white men. Yes, it wasn't really looking at the welfare of all Indigenous people. Yes, well, look, it started out you know, as a result of complaints about the way the settlers treated Aboriginal people. And, you know, that might have been what it started out as, but really in the end it was yeah. to say, ironically, the thing we can do for these Aboriginal children of mixed race, the best thing we can do for them is to take them away from their loving families yeah. and place them in institutions. Yeah. So just dreadful. Yeah. It's interesting, actually, reading about the various government policies in Stan's book, because he does sort of touch on, or not all of the iterations, but the changes in policy, you know, through assimilation and reconciliation and so on. It did make me reflect on the marriage between societal values, the values that you and I might have in the community and our attitudes and government policy in a democracy and how they influence each other, mm. you know, and it's certainly true that when one is lagging behind, the other can demand change. Yeah. So if, if government policy is behind, and, it, and this applies to acknowledgement of the rights of LGBT people yeah. or women or any group, and including Indigenous people, then individuals in society can demand that things improve and in the same way government policy can also shape people's opinions so now government policy is very much anti-hate speech and so on and, and that does to some extent give some architecture to our ability to change but it's it is a reminder that when things often it often seems overwhelming and impossible that we're just one voice and we can't affect change but I think just looking at the history of this it's a reminder that we can. We can. We've had to work very hard to change yeah. some issues. We have to though, really shout and stand But you do have feet. to get very noisy. Yeah, yeah. which yeah. I, I think I mentioned last um, episode. I find, I find that very frustrating. Mm. But anyway, so these government policies and their implementation, of course, had a dreadful and lasting effect to this day on all mm. Indigenous people. They invoked shame, anger, displacement, depression. And so they, there is an ongoing issue about the extreme disadvantage of Indigenous people yes. in Australia, much of which needs to change. I really loved in this book, there was one section, I'm sure you would have loved this too, Lou, when you read it, mm. the impact that Marcia Langton yes. had on yes. Stan's life. And we're talking about one person being able to Absolutely. make a difference. Oh, mm. my goodness. So I'm going to read from this because it's just wonderful. So Stan uh, left school and was drifting. He said, I had no expectations of myself and mm. no one had any expectations of me. And he had a job delivering the mail at the Institute for Aboriginal Studies. Mm. Yeah. And then he writes, I was working in the library one day when one of the Aboriginal researchers approached me. Marcia Langton was one of the first black students at the Australian National University. She was studying anthropology and history. Marcia was always a fearsome sight and she really is, isn't mm. she? She's quite mm. a, an inspiring and, and fierce woman. Yes. She had a reputation for being brutally direct and seemed intimidated by no one. She had been involved in the Aboriginal political movement and belonged to a new generation who would not allow white Australia to define them. Marcia sat me down and in her no-nonsense way asked what I thought I was doing with my life. She told me I had a greater future than spending my days behind a mail trolley. 
She asked what I wanted to be. I told her I would like to be a journalist, and it is true that I had always been fascinated by news. I read the papers every day, front to back, and watched mm. the television bulletins, but I had no idea that it was something I could aspire to. Mm. Marcia encouraged me to consider university, and within a couple of days was back with the enrolment forms, mm. helped me fill them out. I was accepted into the University of New South Wales, and within a few months crossed a threshold that no one in my family had previously even imagined. Just that encounter with, uh, it's with just, Marcia, that's it's just... It's the most wonderful part of it the is, book. It is, I agree I with you, because you just, it. you know, the fact that he, the encounter that he had... she followed through. Yeah. She didn't just sit and have a talk to him, she went and got the enrolment yeah, forms yeah. and she probably figured out, helped him get mm. what funding he needed and where to lodge them and mm. I just, I love it. But, you know, I'd love to sit down and have a chat with her about mm. the course that she was doing at university, anthropology and history in the late 1970s yeah. and early 80s. Yeah, yeah. I'd love to know what the content yeah. of that course well, was yeah. at that time. There wouldn't have been much on yeah. her own people. I can be pretty sure about that. So that was that book. And that one has quite a an angry tone. Yeah, I agree, I agree. He's deeply frustrated and angry and it's sort of done as a letter to his son and it's around the time of the Adam Goods shameful happenings. It's a book that makes you quite sad to read. Yeah, and then I read Australia Day, which was written in 2019, and that was written really in response to ongoing demand to change the date of Australia Day. This one has a much more philosophical tone. It's a much more scholarly book. He quotes great thinkers and philosophers. He says he's suspicious of the word identity. Yes. He says there's a darker side to it, an us and them. It's quite interesting. He traces the history of the Irish grants mm. back to the Gerardinis of 9th mm. century Florence. And there's a fantastic depiction here of the progress or the each generation of the family, if you go back to the ninth century in Italy, he says, a Chinese friend once said to me that we are the last stop in our ancestors' journey. What does that make me? I have been a nobleman in old Florence, part of the Norman conquest mm. of England, an Irish baron, and then a cast out peasant farmer. I have been a Catholic rebel, striking back at the harsh hand of Protestant England. I have been a Wiradjuri warrior, defending an invasion by strangers with muskets. Yet I would be totally unrecognisable to my forebears, someone who doesn't speak their languages or practice their ceremonies. I am a pinwheel of colours spinning into one, a kaleidoscope of history that came to rest on the shores of Botany Bay. He writes really well, doesn't he? Isn't that fabulous? Mm. And to think that none of those ancestors would recognise him or even no. be able to speak to him, mm. I thought that was a beautifully written piece. But it also makes us reflect how all of us are this kaleidoscope. We, are, we all are, mm. yeah. In fact, he knows way more about his history than I do. Yes. So, uh, he's an incredibly erudite and well-educated man. Mm. He cites philosophers Hegel and Kant and Heraclitus. Um, he's researched in great detail the history of his family mm. and he knows all about John Grant, who was a convict, an Irish convict, who came out to Australia and then went on to have the largest landholding in New South Wales mm. by the end of his life. And he also describes in the book the rise of the Aboriginal middle class and there's sort of a, the division between the rise of the Aboriginal middle class and 
everybody else. Yes. Much of that rise was post 1970s yeah. when government policies started to change and some societal attitudes. Um, he talks about being six years old and becoming aware for the first time mm. of his own colour. Yes. And the way he writes about that is so similar to the way the author of my next book talked about that experience. And it, it, it's really quite, it's touched me quite profoundly. Um, he was six and she was four when they each became aware that they were a different colour mm. from all the white people around them. And he has a fantastic chapter in here on race and he has one really good chapter called The White Gaze. There's a lot of statistics here and I don't want to bore everyone with them, but just a few here. He says, but then again, I think how 97% of kids locked up in the Northern Territory are black kids. I think of their parents too likely to have been behind bars. I think of their grandparents likely gone too soon, dead before their time. In this country, Indigenous people die 10 years younger than other Australians. I think how suicide remains the single biggest cause of death for Indigenous people under the age of 35. Mm. I think of Aboriginal women 45 times more likely to suffer domestic violence than their white sisters, and an Aboriginal woman is more than 10 times more likely to be killed from violent assault. So he's got all those sort of statistics at his hands. And he reminds us that it wasn't until the 1967 referendum that Aboriginals were to be included in the census. I know, so that's they weren't just even extraordinary. counted. Yeah. And he talks about how he says, we give race its power. He does a really good couple of chapters on race and white privilege. He says, somewhere in human history, we gave colour power. There was something in the hue of skin, the kink of hair, the width of a nose or the prominence of a brow ridge that we believed determined a person's character. Colour was immutable. Colour was permanent. In America, one drop was all it took, one mm. drop of blood, one black ancestor in a tangled family tree, and forever that person was black. This really struck me, this next bit. A white mother could give birth to a black child, but was it conceivable that a black mother would give birth to a white child? Never. Mm. Black was what white wasn't. It was the anti-white. It was the opposite. It was the dark side. Yeah, and and that's also reflected in the children that are removed, that largely they were the children of black mothers and yeah. white fathers, yeah. but not the children of white mothers and black fathers. The fact that they could Such disempower a black woman. Yeah. And that was okay. Yeah. So Australia Day, it's an excellent book. Mm. There's a very uh, thought-provoking chapter on history and whether we need to remember it. Mm. We often talk about those who forget history are doomed to repeat it mm. and there's all those quotes and we, we know that we don't ever want to forget the Holocaust and, and mm. all those sort of things. But there is also an equally plausible argument that sometimes it's better to forget and that it's remembering history and holding on to grievances and holding on to anger that stops us moving forward. Wow, that's very generous of him. Yeah. But, you know, he talks about it from a sort of a world yes. view and you can yeah. see I, I recently read A Paragon by mm -hmm. Colin mm -hmm. uh, McCann and there's certainly an argument there with the Palestinians and the Israelis that there is so much holding on to history that, people in 2020 were not even involved in, but they are trenchantly, you know, mm. holding well, their side. Well, I suppose side. there's a difference between holding on and 
awareness yeah, exactly. and acknowledgement yes. and, you know, an empathy. Yes. Whether or not you're using it as a weapon. Yeah. So uh, it's, it's, a, a different, it's a question it's, of it balance, is. It isn't is. it? And I think each situation is yeah. probably yeah. quite nuanced. It's a really, and, and his chapter on that is mm. very nuanced mm. and very clever. Mm. So, um, yeah, I would really no, recommend thanks that. Thanks for that, Jenny. Yeah. You did a great yeah. analysis yeah. of those books. I've read the first but not the second. Yeah. So I'm looking forward to reading Australia Day. Mm. Mm. What else have you read, Lou? Um, well, I've written, I read a, a work of fiction, which is The White Girl by Aboriginal author Tony Birch. It was published last year. Apparently he wrote it in eight weeks. Oh, my goodness. It's extraordinary. It's a very tender story that centres on the courage of an Aboriginal woman, Odette, and she's living in a fictional rural Australian town in the 1960s and her daughter, Lilia, has become pregnant by a white man and she's unable to cope with the circumstances of her pregnancy. So she skips town and she leaves her baby girl, Sissy, with her mother, Odette. And look, this is, albeit a fictional story, yeah. you know, so resonant yeah, yeah. with reality. Yeah. Sissy and her grandmother are very close, but Odette is preoccupied with finding her daughter in the city. And then the other growing preoccupation for Odette is that there is a new policeman in their town. Oh, my. And he has power, reminiscent of the protectors of Aboriginals that I've mentioned in the Follow the Rabbit Proof Fence. And he has the power to remove Sissy from her grandmother's oh, care. Right. And he reminds her of that regularly. Oh, my. There are some wonderful characters in what I describe as a pretty deadbeat town, the new sergeant is particularly lo loathsome. But as the story unfolds, there's some really unlikely heroic characters as well. It's a simple story, simple plot, but it considers many of the issues that we're right, sort of talking right. about today. Um, so I just wanted to mention that briefly. It actually won the 2020 New South Wales Premier's Prize for Indigenous Writing. Oh, wow. It has been long and shortlisted for the Miles Franklin this oh. year. Yep. I really want to read this yeah. one. That uh, Miles Franklin Award is probably going to be announced as our podcast is released. And Tara June Winch's book, which you mentioned, yep. The Yield, is also shortlisted. Yes. Yeah. So it's, it's great that of the six books shortlisted, yes. two wonderful. of them yeah. are by Aboriginal writers. Now, the other book that I have read, which I describe it as a as a memoir, really, it's non-fiction book, but it's Stephen Kinane's book, Shadow Lines. It was first published by Fremantle Press in 2003, but it's been reprinted this year and I really hope it gets some renewed attention. It's essentially his memoir of his grandparents' lives. His mother was Jessie Argyle and she was an Aboriginal woman removed from her family at the age of five. Mm. And his grandfather was Edward Smith, who was a middle-class Londoner. Gosh. Who in 1907, at the age of 18, he decides to emigrate to Australia. So this, this book is, it's the individual stories of Jessie and Edward and then it's their collective story, how they met and eventually married despite tremendous opposition and aggravation. So you can imagine Jessie was a woman who was essentially under the protection, in inverted commas, yeah. under the power of the state, yeah. and she wanted to marry this white man from England. But the book traverses all of that and centres on the fact that they were able to raise a loving family with Aboriginal culture at the centre. And woven through the story of Jesse and Edward's lives is Stephen Kinane's own journey. He returned to his grandmother's country in the East Kimberley. Jesse Argyle never returned there, but Stephen does, and we accompany him as he, in his own words, is reunited with his skin. Oh, wow. Yeah, which Gosh. is a, I think it was, is a, 
very moving phrase, mm, it really. It really is. Yeah. So at age five, Jessie, who was called Gypsy uh, by her family, she was living with her family on the Argyle Cattle Station in the far northeast Kimberley, which is close to the border with the Northern Territory. And it was a pr- it was frontier country. Mm. It, it was pretty lawless. The police station adjacent to where she was living was called the Wild Dog Police Station. And it gets special mention in that Royal Commission um, I mentioned as a gateway to vice and immorality. So the Durack family, who've sort of become a very prominent West Australian family, they hailed from Ireland and they had become very successful cattle farmers in Queensland and the Durack brothers drove their cattle across Queensland and across Australia into the Kimberley and they established the Argyle homestead where Jesse was living. And it was the eldest brother, MP Durack, who is believed to be Jesse Argyle's father because her mother was a domestic servant in his home. And just returning to that Royal Commission for a minute, that Royal Commission established a very strong connection between police corruption and the abuse of Aboriginal people and really the hypocrisy of Northern white society. Yet in the end, when the report was released, the police were spared Mm. And the names of the squatter families were expunged from the report because it was felt that they didn't need to release the names to the press of the families I didn't involved. Know that. No. So what we're then left with is what you and I have talked about today. We're left with the only policy to legislate about is removing these children from the mixed families. So Jessie and her brother Toby were some of the first children removed under the legislation. So they were removed 25 years before Molly, Gracie oh, and wow. Daisy. And they found themselves in the Swan Mission, which was east of the city of Perth. And Jessie stayed there under the direction of some very kind missionaries, but also under Mm -hmm. the direction of some less so, until she was 20 and when she was directed to go and work for families as a domestic servant. It's interesting, Stephen Kinane, at various parts in the book, he urges us that his grandmother is a survivor. He says she survived removal. She survived the mission when so many of her contemporaries did not at the time. But, of course, she was by no means free. The protector of Aboriginals maintained a file on her and all of the children that were removed. Their behaviour and progress was constantly monitored. She would receive telegrams from the protector of Aboriginals regularly telling her to settle down, work harder, or they threatened to remove her and send her back to the settlement. And this is in her 20s. Oh, my goodness. Extraordinary. Yeah. There's differing accounts of how and where Jessie met, but by 1924 they're an item and they're going places where they would have been seen and noticed. You know, they really were crossing societal expectations of race and they didn't care. Of course, their association wasn't permitted and I'm not going to give away any more But some of the parts of the book that I found sort of most interesting were sort of the long game that they played. Right. Knowing that they were going to be together, determined that they would be together and remaining secretly in touch at times and despite forced absences, they they sort of had this inner determination to build a family together. How wonderful. Yeah. So for me, you know, Stephen Kinane is quite bitter at times, but I found it quite hopeful ultimately. Yeah. Yeah. Quite yeah. Finding it quite emotional. Yeah, book, yeah. Um, gosh. You know, it's a big book and it's meticulously researched and it's clearly a labour of love. That sounds fantastic. You know, that's Stephen Kinane, um, Shadow Lines. Yeah, okay, that sounds great. Oh, yeah, I knew this would happen. <laughs> <laughs> yes. 
more things to yeah, add to the more list. To add to yeah, the list. well, and and so and so <laughs> we should have as well. Yeah. Um, what else have you been reading? Uh, so I decided to read. I wanted to include a book for our conversation today about anti-racism. Yeah, to, to great sort of idea. Educate myself a bit yeah. more about it and a bit a bit more about white privilege, and it was actually really hard to get my hands mm. on an actual physical book because they were all sold out in every bookshop I went into, which is, of course, incredibly encouraging. Yeah, it is. So I did eventually manage to get my hands on this one, which is one of the ones that I had been really wanting to read, so I was delighted when I I mean, all these books will have multiple reprints, which is just fantastic. it is. It's wonderful. Mm. So I got uh, Rennie Edo Lodge's book, Why I'm No Longer Talking to White People Mm. About Race. It's got a very distinctive cover, and it's quite a provocative title. Yes. And it came into being after Rennie wrote a blog post in February of 2014 of the same title Mm. and it prompted a huge response. And she says, ironically, since she posted that blog, she's spoken more about race to white people than she had ever done before. And she's basically done nothing but talk about race to white people since she wrote that. And then she was prompted to write the book. So I thought, given that, that it would be quite useful just to read the very beginning, just a little bit of the Mm, very beginning of the blog post, what started it all. So she wrote, I'm no longer engaging with white people on the topic of race. Not all white people, just the vast majority who refuse to accept the legitimacy of structural racism and its symptoms. I can no longer engage with the gulf of an emotional disconnect that white people display when a person of colour articulates their experience. You can see their eyes shut down and harden. It's like treacle is poured into their ears, blocking up their ear canals. It's like they can no longer hear us. This emotional disconnect is the conclusion of living a life oblivious to the fact that their skin colour is the norm and all others deviate from it. At best, white people have been taught not to mention that people of colour are different in case it offends us. They truly believe that the experiences of their life as a result of their skin colour can and should be universal. I just can't engage with the bewilderment and defensiveness as they try to grapple with the fact that not everyone experiences the world in the way that they do. They've never had to think about what it means in power terms to be white, so any time they're vaguely reminded of this fact, they interpret it as an affront. Their eyes glaze over in boredom or widen in indignation. Their mouths start twitching as they get defensive. Their throats open up as they try to interrupt, itching to talk over you but not really listen because they need to let you know that you've got it wrong. Just incredible. Yeah, yeah. so that, that was a very uh, powerful mm. opening. Mm. And oh, so, I'm going to have to read this book. Yeah, it's so good. So Rennie is a British journalist mm. and an author and so this book does look at race from a British mm. perspective but what she has to say about white privilege is applicable in Australia. Yes and many other places, I'm sure. So this book charts the history of slavery in Britain and a bit about the history of race in the UK. And she has some sort of examples of where she talks to a young woman who has a Caribbean father but Mm. a white mother and she doesn't really have much to do with her Caribbean relatives because there's been some domestic violence, I think. So she's really brought up in a white family. And she talks about the disconnect between her and her family and how she doesn't want to hurt Mm. them. And so I found that very interesting because I always find very specific examples more useful than 
generalizations. Yes, lived experiences. Yeah. And there's a really good chapter called What is White Privilege? And it's, it's worth just reading a tiny bit from it because it's really useful. She says, how can I define white privilege? It's so difficult to describe an absence. And white privilege is an absence of the negative consequences of racism, an absence of structural discrimination, an absence of your race being viewed as a problem first and foremost, an absence of less likely to succeed because of my race. It's an absence of funny looks directed at you because you're believed to be in the wrong place, an absence of cultural expectations, an absence of violence enacted on your ancestors because of the colour of their skin, an absence of a lifetime of subtle marginalisation and othering, exclusion from the narrative of being human. Describing and defining this absence means to some extent upsetting the centering of whiteness mm. and reminding white people that their experience is not the norm for the rest of us. It is, of course, much easier to identify when you don't have it. And I watch as an outsider to the insularity of whiteness. Mm. This really did make me reflect. And there's so many little things. But one of the things that I've been thinking of, one tiny example, and there's a myriad number of them, but you and I, Louise, probably when we buy things in shops, they say, do you want the receipt? And mm. we say, oh, I often say, no, thanks, mm. don't worry. Because we have never had anyone follow Challenges. us from a shop. No. We've never been profiled and no mm. one has ever come up to me and mm. said, did you pay for that? Mm. And that's just one little one that just occurred to mm. me yesterday when I was sort of thinking about this. But, I mean, we could go on and on. So... I just thought that was excellent. She says, when I talk about white privilege, I don't mean that white people have it easy, that they've never struggled or, the, or that they've never lived in poverty. But white privilege is the fact that if you're white, your race will almost certainly positively impact your life's trajectory in some way mm. and you probably won't even notice it. Mm. I think that's sort of the, the nub mm. of the book. So there's a chapter there on white privilege and feminism, mm. and I have to be honest, Louise, it defeated me, but I think it's one of those things I have to read Return again. to. I mean, yeah. I, the only thing I can say that I took out of it is that we have let our black sisters down. Yeah, sure. <laughs> but I, need, I do want to go back mm. and read that chapter again because it was a little bit difficult to take it all in. Mm. But I, other than that, I would highly recommend it. I thought yeah, it's excellent. Yeah, I can't wait to read that. Um, I, the idea of us being numb and really not noticing yeah. our white privilege is yeah. a huge component, I think. Yeah, we're completely oblivious to it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So that's uh, why I'm no longer talking to white people about race by Rennie Edo Lodge. Mm. So what else have you been diving into lately, Well, though? actually, following on from that book that you've just mentioned, I think it's, I want to mention, a, a, it's a new podcast, well, relatively new podcast. It's on Audible, though, which is a bit of a shame because you have to pay for it or you get it via a credit or... If someone you know has Audible, they can probably give it to you as a gift. And it's We Need to Talk About the British Empire. And it's six episodes by journalist Afua Hirsch. She has a Ghanaian mother and she says that she's always been searching for her place in the world. And what she does is she has six conversations with people who have lived through the British Empire's legacy in various different countries. So she speaks to sort of well-known people who may have had family in India or Pakistan at the time of partition. She speaks to somebody whose family remained in Hong Kong post-1997 and 
she talks about the British influence in Somalia. The conversations often focus on what happened when the British left and what was left behind and what was left behind for both British people that had gone there and for the people whose country it was originally as well. She's really, really smart. Yes, she's she, very yes. measured. She's a dynamo. I've heard her interviewed yeah. and I just love it. Extraordinary. Yeah. I think, you know, she was started out as a lawyer, but she quickly decided to become a, a, a journalist and she's a broadcaster and I think she's on Sky News and CNN. Oh, and, okay. And she's a Guardian columnist and I've, I've read a few of her columns in The Guardian. She writes really well. She's written a book on race, identity and belonging and so that's also perhaps one to research. So that's we need to talk about the British Empire on Audible, raising similar issues, I think, so to, to Remy's book. I've got a, um, a credit for the new month for July on Excellent. Audible, so I'm going to get that one. Yeah. That's what I'm going to use it for. What have you been diving into? Uh, well, I, I'm just so delighted to say that I went to the movies for the first time in four Excellent. months. Gosh, it was the most exciting thing. I got a glass of wine. I got some lollies. I made us get there way too early. <laughs> ridiculously early we were sitting in an empty so it was cinema. a giant occasion <laughs> I just completely lost my mind I think <laughs> Michael was saying doesn't it start at whatever time he's <laughs> sort of looking at his watch yes it does <laughs> but <laughs> don't complain but I thought there would be people queuing up around mm. the corner because they've only just mm. opened well I was wrong <laughs> there was hardly anyone there and everyone else is really worried about coronavirus and it ended up that there were enough people in the cinema that we didn't feel ridiculous. It was, atmosphere, it was yeah. yes. But when we came out, often there's just a mm. massive queue and you've got to push through people. Mm. There was no one. Oh. I felt a bit sad for mm. the cinema owners, actually. But we went to see David Copperfield. Yeah. And unfortunately, we had just, <laughs> in the, you know, almost hour that we had sitting in the cinema <laughs> waiting for it to start, we'd been scrolling through and it was when all the news conference had delivered the news that there were nine tower blocks were going yes, into lockdown in Victoria. in Victoria and the state of Victoria and the coronavirus. And so it was actually quite, de- we, I think we started the movie quite depressed yeah. and, and despondent. And then mm. David Copperfield his fortunes go up and down. They sure the, do. The down parts are tough. Yes. They're really tough. So it was hard going. But it is a very vibrant and rich and colourful movie. So it was mm. really fun to mm. go. And it does have an excellent cast. But I have to say, you know, apropos the things we've been discussing today and, and certainly one of the topics that Rennie Edo-Lodge talks about in Why I'm No Longer Talking to White People About Race, she talks about depictions of black people in cinemas and yes. in movies and films. And this David Copperfield had a really diverse cast. Yeah. And I thought, you know, a few years ago I would have found that quite, I would have been a bit uh, bewildered by mm. that and thought that seems a bit odd or, you know, I would have just thought it didn't seem to accord with what I was used to seeing yes. on the Traditional screen. Traditional Dickens yeah. manifestations. Yeah. yeah. Whereas this weekend I just sat there and just loved it. So does Dev Patel... Come a long way. Dev play- Patel plays David Copperfield yes. and he's pretty good. Mm. He's really good in it. And there are African-Americans and Caribbeans and there's a Chinese mm. guy that plays... Uh, I can't think of his name... Uh, it's really, really mm. well done, mm. the casting, I thought. And they, they clearly just cast people that played that role 
yeah. beautifully. Yeah. They really picked fantastic people. So that got several ticks for me. I yeah, thought it was excellent. really worth seeing just from that point alone. Lots to think about this week, Virginia. Yes, lots to think about. Oh, my goodness. So I think we, you could say that we've uh, made a start yep. on educating ourselves a bit more, but I feel like just those three books that I've talked about today, and I'm sure you feel the same, I feel like I could read another 300. Oh, absolutely. And I think the key thing that we've talked about is that idea of lived experience, yeah. is learning Yes, the, from the lived experiences. So that's it from us today. We'll be back soon. We've got quite a fun theme for the next yes, we have. Yeah. episode. I'm quite looking forward to that. There are a number of books that we could um, end up choosing to read for that one. We haven't quite nailed that down yet. So we'll see you again soon. Bye for now. Bye. We really enjoyed today's episode. Thank you for listening and thank you for all your lovely reviews too. If you want to know more about today's books or anything else we've talked about, you'll find them in the show notes. And we feature most of the books on our Instagram page too at diving underscore in underscore podcast. And if you'd like to share any books that you've been diving into, we'd love to hear from you. Please email us at hello at divinginpodcast.com. Bye for now. Breaking up, shaping up, working in, diving in, breaking up, shaping up.